Good morning. My name is Susanna Hobbs, and I'll be reading Matthew 15, 21 through 31 today. It's found in your pew Bible on page 821, if you haven't already turned there. I'll give you a minute to do that. Okay, Matthew 15, verses 28 through 31. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up to the mount, on the mountain and sat down there. And great cow- crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. <clears throat> I told you it was challenging. Okay, let me pray for us again. Jesus, now would you come in your power? You spoke these words over this woman, and the Bible tells us that you love everyone. So would you help us understand? Would you help us own what it means for us uh, to need you? Help us look to you for our help the way she did. And then I ask God just for the complexities of our stories that make us wonder where you fit and if you're good and what this means. Uh, would you come close to my friends who those questions are really loud. They, they brought them into the room this morning. So, so would you help them? Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, this is a tricky passage for lots of reasons. For one, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's a lot going on inside this text that has like Old Testament background to it. So if you're like just dropping in either to our church or to Christianity, it can feel really confusing. That, that's kind of hard. Jesus' words to this woman, I don't think there's a way around them to be confrontational or uh, maybe painful or they're at least like a provocative, if not offensive, the way he talks to this woman. So that's pretty challenging. We want to spend some time there. But we shouldn't miss the fact that there's actually a, a demon possession going on in the middle of this. The backdrop of this whole thing is an exorcism that Jesus does, which if we're not careful, we we'll just skip right past that to talk about dogs and bread. But like this whole text is really, really complicated. Now, I would guess you hear this with a certain filter and the lens, and what you already think about Jesus shapes how you heard this passage read. There's a ton that's complicated there, so what you already think shaped 
what you actually heard. And we do this with everybody and everything. We have a certain set of ideas and beliefs about a person or a situation or a country. And then you hear a news story, you get a headline, and you immediately run that headline through your filter. Or that one's already probably filtered. So you run the filter through your filter of what to actually do with that, and you make a conclusion. So with our former president, with the headlines with FBI, and whether you call it a raid on his home or you call it some sort of investigation, depends on your view of our former president, right? We always do this. I name that just because we have complicated views of Jesus. Some of them are not big enough. Some of them are misplaced. Some of them need to grow. Some of them are actually really honest, and you're sitting in a text like this going, man, I believe he's good. I know what he's doing is good. I just don't know how it actually works. But you bring a filter to this passage. And there's some classic ideas about how to make sense of this. One view just says, look here, this is Jesus. He's a racist. He's a misogynist. He's, he's mean to this woman because she's from a different ethnic background. I knew it. I knew God was like that. That matches my experience, the feeling on the outside. People read this text and see it as evidence that Jesus is unkind and cruel to this woman. Some people hear it as a theological kind of drive. They hear that same idea that he is actually making a separation here, and they they run through that like a future for Israel. It's different than the future for the the Gentiles. They read it that way. Some some hear it with a a woman hear us roar kind of thing of here's this woman who who changes Jesus' mind. He initially isn't going to help her, and then she stays in this. She answers his question, and he can't get away from it. So she twists his arm rhetorically, and then he moves towards her in mercy. So they, they see it that way. And then some see this as Jesus testing her. And depending on how you understand that word, that's either a beautiful thing to draw out of her really deep thing, or it can feel cruel if it's just like a maze that a mouse runs kind of a test. But if it's an exploration of her heart, if it's Jesus asking a provocative question to get her to be honest about where she's at, then actually I think it becomes really beautiful. And if you think about this story and part of Matthew's larger story, he's interacting with that woman for sure because she matters as one who bears the image of God. But we're also learning something broader than just this woman in this story, which I think is really helpful. So if you come to it with that lens, if you say, hey, what is Matthew trying to teach us about the Messiah, about the ministry of Jesus, about our needs, about what he came to do. If you start with that lens, then you can lean into this, I think, in ways that become really helpful for us. They're actually still pretty challenging. There's no way around the challenge, but I think they're the kind of challenge that actually begin to pull us in. Because Matthew has been making a series of contrasts. So last week we saw him with religious leaders He had done something pretty amazing, and then they begin to nitpick and question the washing of his disciples' hands. And Jesus goes around their question and aims right at their heart and says, hey, you're focused on outside things that you think would defile somebody, but it's actually about their heart. That's where we were last week. And the text says these religious leaders were offended by Jesus. They thought they were in the right. They thought they were clean. They thought they were following all the rules, and they walk away offended. In contrast to them, here comes this woman who doesn't think that she has like a position, who isn't coming demanding. She comes asking for mercy, and she knows that she's in a jam. She knows she's overwhelmed. She knows she needs Jesus, and she walks away with her daughter healed and saying, you are the Messiah. So there's a contrast here of how you see Jesus. Are you starting from this place that he owes you something or he needs to prove himself to you? 
Or do you start at a spot where you have deep needs and you, you're desperate for what God promised to come actually true, to come and send a rescuer and a redeemer that would come and heal the world and take away the sins of the world and make everything right? That, that lens, I think, radically shapes how you engage this text. So I just name all that because you have a lens of Jesus. Whether you grew up in the church or not, maybe you're coming back to church and you've walked away for a while. Maybe what's happened the last couple of years have really rocked your faith and you're, you're really wondering, like, what do I do with Jesus? I can't escape some of the stories I heard as a child. I can't escape the sense of need that I have, but I'm not sure what to do with him. I just want to name that whole idea of lenses and filters just to invite you to be honest about how, how are you starting this morning? How do you hear his words as you begin, because I think what we're going to see is something really, really beautiful, even if it is provocative. Here's my outline. We're going to see the scandalous grace of Jesus, and that'll be mostly in how he interacts with her. Then we're going to see the mysterious signs of Jesus. That'll take us to some context that we need to unpack, and then we'll see a significant choice that Jesus puts in front of us. So scandalous grace, mysterious signs, a significant choice. So first, scandalous grace. Look with me in verse 21. Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we've heard these words already earlier in Matthew's gospel. These are pagan towns. He actually contrasts those towns with the unbelief of the Pharisees, and he says, hey, if the miracles that were done in front of you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. So he's already contrasted those on the outside with his religious people on the inside who think they don't have a need. So we've seen this. Jesus is in a space that's actually outside the Jewish district. So he's been working with Jews. He's been working in kind of the Galilean area. And now he goes outside of that to Tyre and Sidon. So this is like the northwest area of that region. And it says that a woman comes to him that's a Canaanite. Historians tell us that people wouldn't use this word anymore. Mark actually tells the same story and calls her a Syrophoenician woman, which I think is somehow better. I'm not sure. But, but Canaanites, if you know your Bible, that's the ancient enemy of God. So all the Old Testament, they keep warring with the Canaanites. They, there's battles over land with the Canaanites. They represent the enemies of God. So he's been with the religious leaders. It actually says the religious leaders come down from Jerusalem, which is like the center of the center of the center of God's people. And now he's outside the Jewish territory with a Canaanite, an enemy of God, an ancient enemy of God in Tyre and Sidon, not to mention that she's a woman. These other guys have been men, which in that day meant a whole lot more than it does now. And she has a daughter that's demon-possessed, which means like no invitations to neighborhood birthday parties at all. This woman is way, 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 way on the outside. Okay, so Matthew labors to set this story up for us, to show us here is Jesus interacting with a woman who's an outsider. But catch where he is. He's on her turf. We've seen Jesus interact with Gentiles, which is any non-Jew. We've seen him interact with Gentiles, even heal their daughters. We've seen him miraculously, mercifully interact with Gentiles, but it's always been in Jewish areas. Now he's outside of that home base on their turf. So now Jesus, as we're watching the Messiah's ministry, goes to outsiders to where they are, in the places of their deep, deep need, and begins to interact with them. This is scandalous grace. 
And you see it with the way the disciples interact with Jesus and this woman. They're like, hey, would you just send her away? This is crazy. Do something about this. They're ready just to dismiss this whole thing. But Jesus begins to interact with her. And if you start with the lens that Matthew's teaching us, what is the Messiah like? What is, what is the plan of God? How is God's mission going forward? And you take all of that context, what you see is now the story turns not his back on the Jewish people, but he turns towards the Gentiles to make sure they understand and we understand the invitation that's in front of them, to see them able to actually come to him. Matthew's trying to make the very clear point that God cares deeply about those who are on the outside, even his enemies. I mean, this would be like a Russian soldier asking for a favor from a Ukrainian. It's that kind of thing. Like, hey, would you mind helping out somebody? And they're like, no, I'm not going to help you. We're mortal enemies. It's that kind of context that Jesus then interacts with this woman. And what I want you to see is her request is for mercy. She knows she's on the outside. She has a deep sense of her Need And again, Matthew is contrasting her with these religious leaders who didn't sense their need. What we see in this text is that Jesus actually is moving towards the broken. And even his question, I think, is intended to draw her out. So look with me in uh, verse 22. It's Canaanite woman from that region. She comes saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, which is a messianic title. She's heard about what Christ has done. She names her need. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon and he stands there and doesn't answer her a word now most scholars try to enact with this a little bit and go like there's so much in facial expressions there's so much in body language they try to soften this a little bit but the text simply says he doesn't answer her I don't think he's scowling at her for sure but but he doesn't answer her which makes us kind of uncomfortable it doesn't match the Jesus that we've seen in other places so maybe he's actually doing something deeper in this spot The disciples then get exposed, they're frustrated, and they say, hey, send her away for she's crying after she's annoying us. Would you please send her away? And he answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you're like, record scratch, you go, I don't get it. Like, I thought you came because you loved the whole world. Now remember, he's standing in Gentile territory when he says this. So now there's some irony or some deeper meaning. He's standing outside of where the lost sheep of Israel would be to say, I came just for them. And he's interacting with this woman in her turf, naming this really profound reality. And then she comes and kneels before him and says, Lord, help me. And then he answers her again. Something that actually is maybe less comfortable. He says, is it right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? And this is where you just go like, so I don't read the Bible on my own. I have no idea what this means. This seems kind of crazy. Okay, what if what Jesus is doing is what he does in lots of places where he asks questions and makes statements he already knows the answer to to get somebody to interact and engage. Where he'll say to a blind man or a lame man, what is it that you want me to do for you? And everybody's like, hello, Jesus, the guy's blind. Of course he wants you to heal his blindness. But he makes the guy say it invites him to say it. When Jesus says, what all these people say about me, he knows what that is. And then he'll say, and who do you say that I am? He knows who they say he is already, but he's giving them an invitation to actually declare and to say what they believe on the inside. When Jesus interacts with a woman at the well, and he says, hey, go and get your husband. He knows she's already been 
divorced or abandoned at least five times, and the guy that she's with now is not her husband. So he says, go get your husband in a way to have her say, oh, I have deep, deep relational brokenness. There's so many men in my life that have left me hurting and abused and broken. Jesus already knows that. He's inviting her into the light to be honest about what's already inside of her heart. And parents do this too, where you ask your kid a rhetorical question just to kind of get them to respond. So, so I love it actually here on Sunday mornings. Somebody, a little kid will say, it's my birthday today. And I'll go, oh, what are you like, 21? And they'll go, no, I'm six years old. Okay, now if I just said, let me guess, are you six? They'll go, yeah, I'm six. But when I go, are you like 21? Are you driving? Are you going to college? And they're like, no, Pastor Chris, I'm six years old. In that moment, it invites them into something a little bit deeper, right? It's when a dad comes and it's bedtime and he says, we probably shouldn't eat ice cream before bed, right? And the kids are like, oh, dang, maybe we're going to get ice cream. Now he's making a statement, but he's saying something to draw out. All right, so obviously I have a filter with Jesus. I'm going from the cross of Christ first and looking backward to this story. I'm saying, how does a God who sacrifices everything, who himself took our place on the cross to bear the penalty for our sin, to make a way for us to be forgiven and set free, that is the apex of mercy and justice and kindness and sacrifice. How does that God say something like this? And I don't think it's because he's trying to poke her in the eye and put her in her place. I think he's inviting her. I think he's welcoming her to say out loud what we need to hear. And it's scandalous to hear this is an enemy of God who does not deserve mercy and grace. Enemies deserve judgment and wrath. And here comes this woman asking for mercy. And it puts us in the seat of asking, well, where where am I with God? Am I on the inside or am I on the outside? And the Bible says all of us are born on the outside. We're born dead in our sin. We're born enemies of God. The scripture actually says you are born an enemy of God, both by your birth and by your choice. Now, we have been told that we're amazing, that we should have whatever we want, and God should answer to us just like everybody else does in our narcissistic universe. But the Bible says he's Lord and rules and reigns, and we're the ones who have need. And for him to condescend to his enemies and not just tolerate them and not just not judge them, but take their tormented place on a cross and bear the weight for their sin is utterly scandalous. The grace of Jesus expressed for us in the good news of the gospel should shatter us. It's the same way this woman understands she's got no rights, she's got no claims, she's got nothing that she should actually say, nothing she should deserve and demand, and Jesus now comes and meets her in that place, and he names what is actually true. Should you take children's bread and throw that to the dogs? The answer to that is no, you should not do that. And when commentaries try to take this and say, oh, like the word there is like puppies, they're like cute little dogs. And so it's like the way you feed scraps from the bottom of the table, like, no, that's not what this is about. Jesus is actually affirming what is true. Hey, you're an enemy and an outsider. You don't deserve love. So when he dies in her place on the cross to bear the weight for her sin, what a beautiful, scandalous expression of grace. When she acknowledges, hey, you're right. I don't have any rights, but even the dogs can grab what falls off the table. And he turns and goes, oh, that is amazing faith, woman. 
what you've just said is beautiful. What she's saying is, I don't deserve grace, and you want to give it to me. I don't deserve to be forgiven and set free, and you want to give it to me. She represents for us physically what is true for us spiritually, all of us that we stand outside And this story is scandalous, not because of dogs and bread. It's because God condescends to his enemies to have a conversation and then begins to welcome and show mercy. She is drawing out what is true for us to help us see the nature of our brokenness and our sin. What if we're not meant to actually quiet the tension here, but turn the volume up on it? What if we're actually meant to see it as actually more offensive? It's like, man, this is a hard conversation. What if that's true of me? What if I actually don't just walk into God's presence with all these rights and privileges? I actually come needy as an outsider who's an enemy, who's far, far, far away, and he becomes to welcome me. So, so scandalous grace, I think, is the backdrop of this passage. And there are some mysterious signs going on in this whole thing. There's a lot happening, I said, from the beginning there. There's a lot of background here about how God's worked with the Jewish people. They were supposed to be a light to the whole world. They failed in that endeavor. It was always pointing to the one true seed of Abraham, the one true descendant of Israel, Jesus, who would come and rescue the whole world. But for thousands of years, God had it on display to see there is no king, there is no prophet, there is no priest who would be enough for us. We needed a better prophet, priest, king. We needed a Messiah to come. He's been weaving that story this whole time, and there are signs in this passage that the Messiah has come to keep his promise. So look at me back now in the text in verse 26. He answers her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she says, yes, Lord. Yeah, it's true. It's so true. And yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And most scholars would look at that text and say, she knows the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 in the Abrahamic covenant that it was through the people of God that God intended to bless the entire world. So she's saying, I know, I know that I'm not at the center, but the design is that as the kids are eating, things that fall off begin to bless other people as well. She, she knows the promise of God to bless the entire universe through God's people, which would actually center and be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. As she says that, he turns remarkably and begins to praise her like she gets it, like she gets the plan. And he actually, um, Matthew wants to show us like she understands who he is, right? She calls him Lord, son of David, which is a messianic title from the Old Testament, which the Jews are wrestling with. Who is this guy? And, And she calls him Lord a couple of times. She's acknowledging who he actually is. There are mysterious signs in this text. There's promises that are being kept. And I just want to point one, without preaching next week's sermon, the fact that the next scene is the feeding of the 4,000, which is like a whole lot of bread, is not insignificant to this story. If Matthew is showing us contrasts, and she's willing to just have the scraps that fall from the table, and the very next scene in Gentile areas with people that are his enemies who don't deserve is the feeding of the 4,000. And it's almost identical in so many areas as the feeding of the 5,000 that he did among his own people in Jewish territory. Stop for a second and go, what are we trying to see in this place? There is mysterious signs being revealed here that Jesus really did come for the Gentiles, which is great news because most of us are not ethnic Jews. I think there are some like people in our congregation who have like quarter claim or half claim, but most of us are not ethnic Jews. 
So to hear that the Gentiles aren't just able to sit at the table and catch scraps that fall off the very next scene. He comes and he blesses and multiplies these small little loaves. He feeds 4,000 and there's tons left over. And it says in the text next week that everybody was satisfied. So to her question of, yes, I don't deserve. I'm not in this position of demanding. Jesus now is going to show us, oh, I didn't just come to give you scraps. I came to take your place on the cross to welcome you all the way into the family with abundant provision and he takes this beautiful symbol this beautiful miracle and he multiplies it once in a jewish area and once in a gentile area friends that is explicit and is beautiful jesus is telling you what he's like he's the kind of god who moves towards his enemies with a feast not just scraps with a feast and stop and think about your week Think about your betrayal, about your struggle with obedience, your struggle with faithfulness. Think about what things were like inside your heart. Think about things nobody else knows. Think about things that are are crumbling around you, the ways you you claim to love God and that your life doesn't match that at all. And here, this text applied to those spaces in your life. He doesn't just tolerate you. He actually has an abundant feast that he sets before you and he welcomes you though you were his enemy. He brings you into relationship. This text functions like a seam in the story. He's been focused on these Jewish people and now he moves to the Gentiles and then all the way to the cross. There's a seam here going on where God has promised through Isaiah, through the prophets, through the promise of Abraham, even all the way back to the garden where he promised to deal with our ancient enemy in Genesis chapter 3. God has promised to have the blessings flow to the whole world. And what we see in this text is it's the seam where it's beginning to happen. Now we are 2,000 years past this seam and we look back at it and go, I'm saying seam with an M like a, like a thing that's sewn together, seam, not seen with an N. You got it? Thank you. All right. I look at Mark. Mark, Mark is my validation of like, yeah, half of us caught that. All right. So, so a seam because there's two things that are coming together. All right. So this is right on the seam, which would have been provocative. You kind of read this and maybe you tend to go like, yeah, of course I'm supposed to be forgiven. I'm amazing. But this woman would not have thought that at all. The seam here is an invitation to us to see our needs so that we actually experience and encounter the greatness of who God is and the grace of what he's shown. And there is some confusion, right? Because earlier Jesus says, hey, I don't want you to go to anybody except for the Jews when he sends them out on their first missionary journey in chapter 10. So you wonder like, okay, is this him validating that as well? Is he just saying that we only do evangelism among the Jews? Is that what Jesus' mission is? But on this seam, what he shows is, no, no, it wasn't just for the Jews. It was for the Jews first and then to the rest of the world. And so now it makes sense of Jesus saying in John chapter 10, I have sheep of other pastures that need to hear. Right? And we see actually now the way he talked to another Gentile in chapter 8 of Matthew, this Gentile centurion who needed his daughter to be healed. This now begins to make a ton of sense of this passage where as he actually heals her and the guy says, you are the Messiah, you are the one who actually has the power to do this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, nowhere in Israel have I seen such faith among But I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, and they're going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. God's plan was always to set a feast among his enemies to welcome them and ransom them and invite them into relationship. And he's given us hints, and he's pointed to things already in Matthew and throughout the Old Testament. In that passage in chapter 10, though, even, he says, like, there will be a day when the nations come, when the Gentiles come. 
So it's always been that way. What we see now is the mystery is unfolding. And not to get too into the weeds here, but like in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul will make this explicit. We're, we're 2,000 years past the seam. Paul is several decades past the seam. And they're struggling to figure out, like, what does this actually mean? How do we make sense of this? Listen to what Paul says about, about this seam and what Christ has come to do. This is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. He says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh that were called the uncircumcision, right, which is an insult, by, by what is called the circumcision, which is made of flesh. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man and thus making peace. Paul, 50 years past this seam, 30 years past this seam, however you want to date those letters, is giving commentary on this moment and saying, oh yeah, that was us. We were alienated, we were separated, we were far away. And he actually now then began to welcome us. This is verse 4 of chapter 3. He says this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into this mystery, the great mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It was concealed to them as it has now been revealed. Now it's been revealed by the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, they're not just tolerated. They're not just allowed to come and eat scraps from the table. They are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's scandalous grace in this thing, and there is mysterious signs being revealed and explained. The promises of God are coming true in this passage as Jesus welcomes this woman into relationship, which leads us to this massive choice, this this situation where we stop and say, all right, what am I going to do? This significant choice, will I see Jesus for who he is, and will I let him tell me who I really am? Do I see myself as an insider who's got all these rights and privileges and therefore I want to resist my neediness? Or do I see myself as one who's on the outside who welcomes the ransom of Jesus to come and rescue and redeem and heal? It puts a significant choice in front of you of what you'll do with Jesus. If you've already chosen him, that choice should remind you, it should nourish you, it should encourage you. If you haven't yet trusted Jesus, hear, hear an invitation Though you feel on the outside like this woman, and your details are different, why you are on the outside are different than her historic details, but what's true of her physically is true of you spiritually, and Jesus came. And what he asks is that you acknowledge your need so he can meet them. You say, oh man, I just need some bread. And he sets a feast before you. There's a choice to choose Jesus explicit in this text, but I think there's also an implicit other choice or other question of what you will do it's will you join Jesus in his ministry to people that don't yet know will you actually go where Jesus goes to the outside to actually welcome people in which is where I want to kind of stop for a second and give you like a little treat this text pulls us into a space where we get the chance to talk about like missions and telling people that don't yet know and and hearing stories of what God's doing around the world my treat for you this morning is for you to hear for a moment from Justin Georgiev, 
Justin and Grace are about to head to Greece, where they'll work with refugees there. They're coming from all over the globe into Europe, and they see it as a space where God wants to bring light and help. They've asked us to be their sponsoring church, and so on September 18th, as members, we'll get a chance to vote on that, which I think will be an affirmation of our desire to get behind them and say, yeah, we want to send you. We want to be a part of what God's doing around the world. But as Justin and I talked about, hey, what, what it would uh, be like for you to hear their missionary story in the passage in front of us here of Jesus going and to hear of somebody else going that I think would both like inform you of what they're doing, but I also wanted to illustrate what it could look like for you. I'm praying that over the next few decades, God sends a lot of us to places where people have not yet heard the good news of the gospel. And what's amazing is people are coming to our city from other spots, other backgrounds, other religions who are desperate to hear, who feel their neediness. And so there's gospel opportunity here in Kansas City for sure, but there's also tons of need around the world. So, so with that in mind, let me ask you to clap and welcome Justin Georgia for a moment. Can wrap this fast. Justin's going to share a little bit what they're going to do. I'm going to ask him a couple of questions, and you'll hear some more in the days ahead. But this is Justin, his wife, the Grace, is somewhere in the room, and they've got three kiddos. It's good to be here. Um, I'm excited. I'm. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad for the the opportunity to share um, this passage. As I've been talking about it with Chris this week, um, a little bit fits so well with what we've experienced working with Iranians and Afghans. Um, it highlights heart issues that we obviously see in the Jewish context of the text, but we see it today in our own hearts, if we're honest. We see it especially in war-torn areas of the world, um, of which the Middle East is, is a great one. Um, the way that we divide up people as worthy and unworthy, and then we give value to them if they're worthy and no value if they're unworthy, We've seen this in how Iranians treat each other, in how Afghans treat each other, in how um, different Americans, even evangelicals sometimes, treat uh, immigrants. It's something that we're not immune to, even myself. We are naturally uh, capable of very horrible things in our own hearts towards others. We divide up the world in ways that, are, that conform to our own values, rather than the values that Christ has. The Jews obviously did this in their context, in this passage, right? They looked at the Gentiles, and they called them dogs. They uh, didn't even view them as worthy of receiving scraps. They would not even sit at a table with them. Um, And yet, what they were supposed to do from the beginning was to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to welcome the nations to come and to sit before the son of David and to worship their Lord. What we've seen with Iranians is, is exciting because we've seen people that were divided that are now unified. We've seen people that, are, that hated each other that now love each other. Um, and we've seen this take place over the table. I think we often think of ministry as stage stage activity or something that takes place in a classroom or something that takes place in a really formal setting. But the vast majority of ministry takes place over a table, which is good news for you and I because most of us are not 
very, uh, don't have a great stage presence. Um, most of us are not great at public speaking and at public activity, but ministry is table fellowship. Um, and we've seen that with the Iranians. We've grown to love them, even with all of their difficulties. I can think of numerous stories to tell. I can think of Kia and Amir and Ilya, three good friends of mine that really didn't like each other. They were friends, and then they had a big disagreement, and they didn't talk to each other for like a year. And Iranians hold grudges for a long time. I think the whole Middle East, the Balkans, that whole area of the world, they hold grudges for centuries. That's why they still have so much division. And yet, talking with them and getting them to actually sit down with one another and uh, work out their differences, because they are believers, they can unite around Christ. And today they are they're, they're friends again. Um, I can think of Amin, who is a stereotypical rotund chef from, as he always brags, the hottest city in the world, Afaz, Iran, where the temperature gets to ridiculous numbers. Um, he was very hurt by an abusive pastor. And yet, after a year of holding bitterness and grudges, that again, he was going to hold to his grave, eventually he went to this pastor and, and said, I forgive you. And to this day, the pastor still doesn't acknowledge the harm that he's done. Or I can think of Paimon, um, who was our engineer um, language teacher. Um, very strict. And yet he has... He holds all kinds of guilt in his heart for how he's treated women in the past. He viewed women as less. And so in the workplace, or even with his own wife, uh, he was abusive. And when we had him in class, he would always treat me with more favor than my wife. And yet, after a year of working with him as a language teacher, he softened to my wife. We've seen him become gentle and kind and become a very dear friend of ours. In fact, today, he's all, he usually asks for my wife's opinion more than my own. <laughs> there are so many stories, but my time's running out. I could share more um, of an Iranian woman who uh, hated the local Azeri Turks where we lived in the Republic of Georgia. They are viewed as unclean and dirty. Iranians pride themselves on being a clean people, and they look at this other people group around them, and they're like, these are dirty, disgusting people. I don't want to have anything to do with them. But because of the gospel, she now welcomes all of the women in her complex, her apartment complex, into her home. She's trying to learn their language. She has friends that do know the language come over and read the Bible to them. She prays for them. And we've seen this happen because the gospel has touched her heart. And she's seen that in Christ, we are unified, we are one, and we can welcome the unworthy. This hospitality and fellowship is central, I think, to, uh, to Christianity. It's the highlight of our service to some degree. We celebrate at a table. I know we don't use tables here, but we call it the Lord's table. It's central to what we are as Christians and as followers of Christ. We are all unworthy, and we are all uh, naturally unwelcome because of our sin before the presence of God. And yet, we welcome one another, and we are welcomed by Christ to come and to eat together. We are looking to go to Greece. Um, in the next uh, few months, we're hoping to go. We just got our visas a few weeks ago. Uh, it's been a long process. 
But the situation in Greece with refugees is really ugly. I'm sure you've all seen pictures. I'm sure you've all seen uh, and read articles on the subject. But it's a dire situation. There are millions of people going through Greece right now uh, trying to get into Western Europe. They are unwanted in their own countries. They are <clears throat> abused along the entire route, many of them traveling all the way from Afghanistan, often by foot, all the way through Iran, through Turkey, across the waters, into Greece, and they are, um, they are taken advantage of. They are often abused physically um, by their own people, by their own religious brothers and sisters. And they get to Greece often at the lowest point in their lives, and they are desperate. And they find kindness from Christians. And it's surprising because they don't think Christians are kind people. They know and expect kindness from their brothers and haven't received it. They don't expect kindness from people they view as their enemies. And yet, this is how the church has always operated. The church has always been a, a people that goes to the most unworthy and unwanted. Israel was to be that, and they failed. And Christ fulfilled what Israel was to be. And now we, as his body, are going to do the same. Um, the early church was known as a place, uh, as a religion of women and slaves that no Jew, self-respecting Jew, would, uh, would join, and no self-respecting Roman or Greek would join because they uh, thought too highly of themselves. You see, the gift of Christ for the world is an offense to Romans and to Jews alike. Not, uh, not because it is so lavish, but because of who he chose to give it to. This gift to this, uh, this Canaanite woman that of grace was not uh, so amazing because of how amazing it is that he heals her daughter, but it's amazing because of who she is. The Gentiles would lavish wonderful gifts on, on each other, but they would only do it selectively to the most worthy recipients. But Christ chooses the most unworthy. He chooses the most unworthy to go, uh, to go to, and he chooses the most unworthy like ourselves and you guys as his instruments to go. This is the goal of missions. It's to welcome those who are unworthy, unfit, unwelcome into the presence of God. Paul, in the book of Romans, at the very end, after talking about Jewish and Gentile divisions and how we're united in Christ and how we should love one another and care for one another, he says that we are, um, he says we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. You welcome me because you have been welcomed by Christ. We welcome Iranians, we welcome Afghans because we have been welcomed by Christ. It's this activity that, that I want to spend my life in, and I know many of you do as well. I would love to get to know you more, but my time is running out and Chris is giving me looks. Um, but we, we want to meet you, we want to talk to you. So please come and, and talk with me and my wife, Grace, who I don't even know where she's at right now. Um, but thank you so much for letting us share. Would you clap one time? Let's be honest, they're, they're tired of hearing me talk. So let me, <laughs> let me ask you a couple of questions. Um, 
when someone wants to kind of hear more, they want to partner with you, they want to get more information, what's the best way to do that? Um, we have sign-up sheets in the back that you can go to, um, and you can sign up uh, to receive our newsletter. Um, and if you are interested in talking about financially supporting us, there's a box you can check on that as well. Good. We're going to host a dessert as well for the Georgists and watch the bulletin or newsletter for that um, as we think about like ways to kind of get behind them, get your questions answered. Again, on the members meeting at the 18th, they'll share a little more there, and we'll vote to affirm them. We would love to financially get behind them as a church kind of organization, but then want to give you opportunities as individuals as well. Give us a sense of the need, like how much more do you guys need to be able to go to Greece to do this work? At the moment, we're about $2,000 a month short, um, and once we get, uh, get enough, we'll be buying tickets and, and going. So, yeah. They were missionaries in the country of Georgia before this, which has a lower cost of living than Greece. So you can imagine like how the stuff that you see about inflation is affecting you. Uh, that's a big part of where they're at as they think about that. Okay, real quick then, how can we pray for you and your family? Then I'll actually pray for you, and then we'll come to the table together. But give us a couple of ways to pray for you in the next few weeks and months. Um, right now, we're trying to determine exactly what to do with our kids for schooling. Um, we've been homeschooling, and that's illegal in Greece. So pray that we would... Um, Choose, choose wisely and that we would find a good, a good place for the kids. Um, and then also just uh, who we partner with there. There's a lot going on and so we have lots of opportunities, uh, but we just want to make sure we get a good fit yeah. with whoever we connect with there. Good, okay. Well, let me just pray for him now. Would you just extend a hand this way? Jesus, we pray for the Georgists. Thanks for the call in their life. Thanks for the kind of God who calls unworthy people, which is all of the world to yourself than to partner with you to go to the world. What a beautiful God you are that you do this. Thanks for their willingness to go, uh, to struggle, to sacrifice, to put themselves in difficult places to share this beautiful news. As they have real tangible questions about schooling for their kids, would you make a way? Would you provide? Uh, Would you give them clarity on what to do? Would you resource them well through your people here in Kansas City and other parts of our country that They might be fully funded quickly so they can get overseas. And as they look at the landscape of all the different needs, all the places where they could make a difference, where there's lots of opportunity to tell the good news, would you give them a sense of delight and burden and affection um, as they look at those needs of where you might have their family plug in uh, in the next few months? So would you bless them, bless their kiddos as they uh, prepare, uh, strengthen their marriage, watch over them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks, brother. Hey, so we started by saying there's like a filter by which you see Jesus. And now we get a chance to say the filter that we're invited to see him through primarily is through his sacrifice for us. Our tradition is on Sunday mornings to take communion together, which is a declaration that God came to those who were unworthy of love He didn't just tolerate them. He sacrificed for them, made a way for them to be forgiven and free through his own broken body and shed blood. That's the good news of the gospel, that you can be forgiven and set free, that he loves you. He's willing to sacrifice for you and to go to where you are, which is so beautiful. If you've already trusted Christ, I would invite you to come and take communion. The way we do it is we tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. There will be servers here in the front. There's a gluten-free station over here to my right, your left, and some individual packets as well if that's more comfortable for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to engage this text, put yourself in this woman's shoes, and ask, what do you need? Ask if Christ would be willing to meet that, if he would actually come to you in mercy. 
There's some prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some language of what it could sound like for you to pray and talk to him during this time. Don't come take communion, but pray and just ask God to speak to you and draw you to himself if, if he's real, if he is actually offering you something that would change and cleanse and, and heal you. So let me pray for us and then we'll celebrate this table, this beautiful meal uh, that we get to participate in. Jesus, thank you for your love and mercy. Help us now stir our faith. Remind us of what is true. Help us. And we want to bring all these doubts and questions to you and let this meal be what orients us to understand who you are, what you're like, and how you care about what we care about. So help, and we say thank you for your extravagant, scandalous, beautiful grace. You are amazing. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we'll take communion, and then we'll sing it a little more.